Good morning. So we're going to read together uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Go for it, George. And to the angels of the church in Polygon wrote the word, oh, that's you. the word of him who had the edge to edge sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrifices to idols and practice sexual inimity. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, what? Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you in soon and war against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, give us a hunger for that hidden manna more than a hunger for any other food. Pray that you would... Uh, give your words to the speaker today and that we would listen in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. So in this life, we get a handful of truly uh, mega decisions, the big ones, who you end up marrying, if you marry, where you move, how you're going to make a living, etc. But the open secret of all of that is that those decisions are shaped by millions of mini moments in life. And that it's those mini moments that make up and, and transform and shape the trajectory of a life. It's been said, don't sweat the small stuff, and I'm here to say, uh, at least pay attention <laughs> to the small stuff. Maybe don't sweat it, but pay attention. I came across a story this last week of John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwood. Yeah. You guys UCLA fans, Kim, uh, Ken and Lynn? Uh, and and it, it was told that when he had, if you don't know who John Wooden is, he's the coach of UCLA, basketball um, Hall of Fame player and Hall of Fame coach, uh, coached the likes of Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, had a winning record, 664 wins and 162 losses. His average was like an 80% win percentile, just unheard of and one of the greatest coaches of all time. It's told that when he had new recruits in, so these are the best high school basketball players in the nation, their first practice, he would bring them into the locker room, have them sit down and take off their shoes and their socks. And then he would take off his shoes and socks and kind of do a Mr. Rogers number on them. And he would take 30 minutes which each, with each of these students who have played basketball before, again, the best in the nation, and explain to them how to properly put on socks and shoes. 
to prevent blisters. How the toes should go, very meticulous about that. And it said that he said this, why? Why spend 30 minutes doing this? He says, if there's wrinkles in our socks or shoes, and, uh, and in our socks or our shoes aren't tied properly, we may develop blisters. With blisters, some players might have to miss practice. When we miss our preparation time together, we may not be ready to play our best on game day. And if we don't play at our best level, we may not win. All because we did not pay proper attention to how we put our socks and shoes on. If you want to win championships, you must take care of the smallest of details. And the challenge for those players and the challenge for the church in Pergamum and the challenge for us today is this. Are we willing to experience potential pain and loss and even patience in the presence for growth and health in the future? This is what was going on in the church of Pergamum. And I don't know how you'd say their names, the Pergamumians. You know, it's like, oh, Laodiceans, Ephesians, Pergamumians is what I'm going with. It's a wild passage in a wild book. And I don't know, for, for when I'm studying and preparing, and, and I know family worship is coming, and I read this passage, I go, okay, um, how are we going to tackle this one while honoring parents and students and not, you know, giving all sorts of unhealthy uh, dialogues and giving you uh, parents questions that you don't want to answer later. Uh, it's a wild passage in a wild book. If you didn't notice, as Larry and Jorgen read, there's swords and Satan, there's Balaam and the Nicolaitans, there's hidden manna and white stones. What do you do with all of this? Well, for you kids, we're doing a seven-week journey through these seven churches in Revelations chapter 2. Revelation, I said Revelations, I caught myself. It's Revelation chapter 2 and 3, not the Revelations, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and it's people in the ancient world that were just like you and me, who would wake, who would work, who would worry, who would go through all sorts of just the challenges that life had to offer, and every week we get a glimpse into a few things. Number one, who Jesus is and something about his character. So this week you see Jesus is the one that carries a two-edged sword and uh, is willing to do war against his people. You get a glimpse of how it's going. There's an evaluation with God's people in the churches. Jesus is in their midst evaluating, seeing, hearing, and then speaking into their situation. And then you get a promise attached with every single church to the one who conquers. And here it's about giving manna, this hidden manna, and a white stone. That's what we're looking at every single week. We're seeing Jesus and evaluation, and a promise. And here he's being introduced as one having a sharp two-edged sword. Not just any sharp two-edged sword, but the visuals is, are, are they're great. It's a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. Just imagine that. And what is this about? Well, it's giving us a full picture of who Jesus really is. And we all tend to gravitate towards some form of Jesus. And what we say often is we need all of Jesus for all of life. Many of us like the image of Jesus, kind of Thomas Kincaided, you know, holding a little lamb in a gentle pasture, and that absolutely is our good shepherd, who is that kind of savior. But also, he has some hard things to say for his people. 
Isaiah 11 talked about the, the Savior carrying a sword. And, and this is also in line, if you're familiar with the Bible, one of the most famous passages that talks about swords is Hebrews chapter 4, where it compares God's word to a sharp two-edged sword. It should be up on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter number 4, verse 12 and 13, where the writer says, For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And if you go to John chapter 1, you see that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there is this theme throughout Scripture where the Savior, who is Jesus is and has a sharp, two-edged sword. And what does he do, or what is this about? It's, it's the fact that he tells the truth. And the truth cuts, and those cuts can hurt. Flannery O'Connor said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Jesus tells the truth. And why does Jesus introduce himself in this way? Well, because God's people in Pergamum were not fully aligning with his truth. As he gives his evaluation with who they are and where they're at, he says, I know where you dwell, which again is this beautiful and terrifying news. It's beautiful that Jesus knows where you're at and what you're going through. And it's terrifying because Jesus knows where you're at and what you're going through. It's this paradox, to quote one of my favorite pastors from last week. He'll remain nameless, don't want it to get to his head. But there's something interesting that one commentary highlighted for me uh, in the Greek. That the Bible uses a few different Greek words. It was the New Testament was written primarily in Greek, and there's a couple different words for where you dwell. One of which is peroikin, which is uh, what we're teaching on next week. It is a temporary residence. The, the theme that God's people are sojourners, strangers, and pilgrims within the world. Uh, heaven is not my home, I'm just a passing through, I think the old hymn goes. There's that idea. That's not the word that Jesus uses for God's people dwelling in Pergamum. He uses another one similar, Katoikin. Chris Fisher can correct me on the pronunciation of that, that it is a residence in a permanent and settled place. That's the term he uses. He says, I know where you're at, and basically, you aren't going anywhere. As I read that, I was like, that sounds like me with Prescott. <laughs> Tried to leave, wanted to leave, never got out of the place. Um, and that's okay, God has me here. This is where they are to go on living. Now, why would that maybe be surprising or shocking with Jesus using that word? Because Pergamum was a tough place, if, if you notice from the reading. It's, you know, where Satan's throne is. And for those of you that are looking for a house, you know, you're talking to your realtor. We have some good ones here in the church. If you need one, you're trying to stay away from Satan's throne, Right? <laughs> checking the Zillow, and you're like, oh, Satan's throne? Let's <laughs> stay out of that area. What's going on there? G.K. Beale, he says this. 
The throne of Satan in Pergamum is a way of referring to a city that is as a center of the Roman government and pagan religion in Asia Minor region. It was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a Roman ruler, Augustus, and the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. Furthermore, Pergamum was also a center of pagan cults of various deities. For example, the cult of As, uh, it's, uh, Asclepius, I looked that one up this week, the serpent god of healing was prominent in Pergamum. The serpent symbol of Asclepius also became one of the emblems of the city and may have facilitated John's reference to the throne of Satan. Zeus, Athene, Demeter, and Dionysius were also gods receiving significant cultic attention. Satan works through the ungodly earthly political power in Pergamum to persecute God's people. That's where they were at. And if you ever wondered what G.K. Beale looked like, I brought a picture for you kids, because we quote him semi-often. There's G.K. Beale, exactly what you would expect <laughs> for somebody that just wrote that paragraph. That's where they are at, and they are being killed for being faithful. You, you see that about Antipas, his faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here you have God's people being persecuted, and they are strong enough to die for the faith. One commentator says it was a heroic church, and they had the bones of the martyrs to prove it. And so they are holding fast in the face of pressure. Another pastor says a witnessing church will be a persecuted church. But it seems as though compromise had and was taking place in seemingly smaller areas. This I have against you, Jesus says in verse 14. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we can read that today and go, eh, Balaam, Nicolaitans, like that's completely foreign and unfamiliar, what's the big deal? Well, we'll go back to the Old Testament and do a little bit of Sunday school. Any of you kids, we'll do a test. Um, this is Beth Garcia. Her, uh, she is our kids director. This is her performance review right now that you're all <laughs> witnessing together. Any of you kids know who Balaam is and what the, the fame of Balaam is? So we got some work to do. You said this. Anything about Balaam you got, Jake? Say donkey. Donkey? I heard donkey. Oh, Beth passes. Perfect. It's the story of a prophet-like figure who was hired by Balak, a Moabite, to curse God's people. So it comes in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. The people of God are uh, ransomed and redeemed out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness, and the Moabites are kind of shaken in their boots. They're worried because they see God's hand upon his people, and so they hire a, what do we do? Let's hire this guy Balaam to speak a curse. And Balaam's like, I can only speak the truth of what God tells, and he's riding his donkey. And, and this is the stuff of the Bible that, for you kids, read the Bible it's so great. And I get a lot of it, you're like, what is this even talking about? But then you get to some of these gems, and I'll read it for you. Numbers chapter 22, 28 through 25. 
It says, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. <laughs> and she said to Balaam, and it's like, this is better than Shrek. <laughs> what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And then Balaam isn't going, wait, my donkey's talking to me. He just answers back. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. <laughs> then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw there was an angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me, this going to curse the people of Israel. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went and went on with the princes of Balak. And as the story goes, he gives three oracles that are supposed to be curses upon the people of God, but they end up just being blessings. He can only speak what God tells him to speak, and it's blessing, blessing, blessing. But you get this little hint afterward in Numbers chapter 31 that, the, that Balaam convinced Balak, look, this cursing thing isn't going to work, but we can get them if we send in food and ladies. And the mega decisions and directions of the children of Israel ultimately were shaped by these mini-type moments. Eugene Peterson, in his book on the seven churches, he says this about the teaching of Balaam. He says, the people of Israel, after 40 years of austerity in the desert were seduced by the smell of roasted rams and the smiles of perfumed girls. They had been true to God in matters of life and death, but failed to be true in matters of eating and drinking. Opposition didn't work, cursing didn't work, but clever lies did. And if you were wondering what Eugene Peterson looks like, <laughs> hey, just what you'd expect. So I got hope for this right here that this is going to produce some uh, better quotes in the future. In wisdom, maybe. <laughs> Doubtful, for those of you that know me. Opposition didn't work, cursing didn't work, but clever lies did. How does this work? How is it that we, God's people, can be strong in the big things, but allow erosion by the minutia of life? And my thought is that the enemy knows how we work. And you can trace this theme all the way back to the garden and throughout human history. Did God really say? Eugene Peterson says this, again, Satan's lie is to separate what we say from the way we live. To make a division between our confession and worship and our conduct at work. Truth is lived truth. Truth is not simply what we say, 
but what we live than this. Sometimes it is easier to die for the truth in a crisis than to live the truth through a dull week at work. You know that, and you feel that. I don't really have any doubts that any of us would die for our faith in this room, should or if it ever came to that. I, I don't know. <laughs> Ken, you're saying you, you, uh, you have your, your doubts? I don't of you personally, Ken. I know you enough to know, yeah, you may have your doubts in your heart. I, you'd be fine. But the doubt I have of myself and from conversations that I've had with many of you is that many of us struggle to just live the truth out day to day. There's no knife pointed at us, gun to the head. But do you struggle with compromise? Do you struggle with living out the truth in your day-to-day -day dealings? Your attitude, your heart, your just default disposition towards God, people, and the world? Why do we resist living in the truth? Why do we compromise? And I think that there's a couple things going on. Again, first, going back to the beginning, it's that we don't like pain, and we also struggle with being distinct in the midst of the world. And those are two things that we tend to avoid at all costs. Distinction being it's odd to go against the grain of the world. But when we go against the, like, basically you have to choose the splinters you're going to get. And many of us choose to go against the grain of God in our day-to-day -day dealings and get all of the effects and the splinters of there rather than going against the grain of the world. Again, Flannery O'Connor, she's got the hot hand this week. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Is her take on Jesus, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Pergamumians, they were willing to die for Jesus, but they struggled to live in the truth. And is that not the human condition? If you ever look in the mirror, you know that's true of yourself. Because the truth often hurts as or before it helps. It is painful to say no to sin and yes to grace in the short term. That there is a perpetual process for followers of Jesus of death and resurrection. But through pain, there is growth in health. But again, we humans often want to avoid the blade and instead stick to a band-aid. And we can ask our resident family physician, palliative care. I don't see Kim. I was going to call on the dermatologist as well. Those people that carry the blade week after week and are cutting people, why? For their good. But how often we resist the blade and settle for the Band-Aid and allow the disease and the rot to further spread. There is a better way. If the things in our lives are enemies of the ultimate and fullest joy and freedom and peace and love, it's time to war against them. Not coddle, not excuse, not delay, but allow the sharp two-edged sword of Jesus and his word to cut out everything that would cost us ultimately. So do you want to grow? And I would say most of us, yes. Do you want to change? 
Again, if we're honest, yes. Maybe the better question is, do you want to be faithful to Jesus? Do you want to be faithful to your neighbor? Do you want to be faithful to the world? Do you want to, in the words of Revelation, conquer? If so, it will take pain in the process. Just ask our resident bodybuilder, Cody Clark. No pains, no gains. And if you wonder what he looks like, he's the guy clicking the mouse. Didn't get your, I could have got your Instagram pictures of leg day up on the screen, bro. Maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. In a book, Leadership Pain, Samuel Chan says this, growth equals change, change equals loss, and loss equals pain, so inevitably growth equals pain. Pain is a part of progress. Anything that grows experiences some pain. If I avoid all pain, I'm avoiding growth. Kids, this is what your parents are attempting in life when it comes to rules, regulations, and discipline. They're attempting to help you and themselves align with the truth. Follow the truth. And one of the greatest and difficult, most difficult challenges in life and that the church faces in rampant, and is rampant today is will we follow the truth? Will we allow the truth to shape us and mold us and send us? Not treating truth is an all-you-eat-can-eat buffet. And not in the sense that you get as much of it as you want, but that you pick and you choose and you, know, you take a little and you don't like it, and so you just kind of discard it and send the plate back. That's how we see and evaluate and deal with truth today. We'll follow the so-called lower T truth if it fits with our feelings, emotions, desires in the moment, rather than allowing the truth to shape our emotions, feelings, and desires. And this is where I'm uh, attempting to do you parents a solid by not going deep into all the ways in which this looks a certain way today. The teachings of the Nicolaitans and Balaam are still alive and well. Just look around. I was in Disneyland last week. It's there in your face everywhere. Like, it's there. It's available. Will we align with Jesus? And this is why we need to not only know the word of God and the sharp sword of Jesus, but welcome it and encounter it and let it shape us. This is why God's people need God's world, because we live in a world full of lies. My heart is full of lies. Your heart is full of lies. And we are being pushed and pulled and influenced every single day by subtle cunning, good-sounding lies. We need God's word to shape our souls and shape our church. How did they and how would we withstand dwelling where Satan's throne is? How would we, how will they live with love and truth and integrity? Again, there's unique challenges, but it's the same story. So are the tools. And the good news is this, that even though the enemy still knows us and how we operate in his cunning, so does Jesus. Like we're not outmatched by the enemy because of the tools that we have been gifted 
in our Savior. The enemy knows us, yeah, but our Savior knows us better. He gives better gifts. And his light can expose the areas of sin. And at that moment, we have an opportunity to either repent or, in the words of Revelation, invite war and judgment. I'll just let that settle in with every one of you how it needs to. Either, when the truth confronts us, we can repent, confess our sin to God, to one another. There's a biblical pathway for that. Again, remember the red hats make repentance great again. Uh, it's in the works still. Uh, my little side hustle that's not going to happen. We can either repent and allow the blade of the word of God through confession and repentance to lead us towards truth and holiness, or we can have Jesus war against us. And Anthony can attest, I can attest, we all can attest. It never ends well. Unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, never ends well. And there's no timetable for it. Sometimes it's immediate. If, if you're one of the fortunate ones that has immediate implications for your sins, like I felt like as a kid I was the one that got caught like right away in certain instances, and I'm in the principal's office just crying, <laughs> But there's such a grace in that. The longer it goes, the harder it becomes. And the gift and the promise in this is that the gospel grants us provision and protection. Jesus promises for his people, to those who conquer, he's going to give hidden manna. What's that all about? Well, it's a sign of the daily bread that God gave and sustained his people with through the wilderness. And God is still sustaining his people. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus will sustain us and provide for his people as we live into his truth. No matter what the cost becomes of living into the truth, no matter the pain, no matter the distinction, Jesus has promised to provide for his people. And then the second thing, this white stone, is protection. Well, what does it mean? A couple commentators all over the map a little bit, but the two main historical things that commentators point to is that winners at competition in the time were often given a white stone that would signify their winning that would give them entrance into the victor's banquet. That's one aspect of a white stone. There was another aspect of a white stone at the time that jurors at trials would give that to those who were acquitted and found not guilty. Either way, both have implications in the gospel. That in Jesus, we have entrance to this banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb at the last day will, where he will feed and supply and sustain his people for all time. They will be protected. They will be safe. They will be free from sin and the pressures of it. And in the gospel, we have this verdict, not guilty because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. So what this letter to the church in Pergamum is saying, that in following after him, no matter the pain and the distinction, what you will get is provision and protection. That instead of living into falsehoods that lack sustenance and security, and kids, if you hear anything, and I'm preaching to myself this morning, sin lacks sustenance. It will not feed you long term. It's like Cheetos. 
I swear, you can eat a whole bag of them and you won't be full at the end. And I'm not, I'm not railing against Cheetos. They're delicious. Eat them as much as your parents will give you. But it's like sin. And that, again, after you eat a bag of Cheetos, you also don't feel great. And maybe look a little orange. Um, but sin lacks sustenance. And it also lacks security. Because when you live into a life of sin outside of the truth, uh, you're on your own. You're stepping out from the promises and protection of God and saying, I got this. And the good news is that for every single sinner, here and for all time, there's safe arms, there's security and protection and provision for anyone and everyone that says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he doesn't demand that people be perfect. He demands that they trust him and allow his truth to sustain them and shape them and lead them and guide them. So I pray that today we would see that in Jesus there's freedom, there's redemption, there's security through his death, through his resurrection, and through the gift of his spirit that fuels and forms life today. Allow the sword of Jesus to shape every aspect of your life. We are asking Jesus' sword to shape every aspect of our community. We're asking Jesus to allow the sword of his word to make us distinct, even and especially when it's painful. Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask for your help. We need today um, courage. We need boldness, we need humility to lean into who you are and how you say life works best. We recognize that in this world there are lies aplenty that would lead us astray. God, we're a people that long for comfort and so we often avoid the pain of living into the truth. We are often led by our feelings instead of allowing our feelings and emotions to be shaped by your truth. And so I pray today that you would give us a greater awareness and attentiveness to who we are, to how we operate, and to who we are becoming. And that our North Star, the coordinates that we follow would be you, Jesus. Your word and your way in the midst of the world today. And so as we respond, would you allow your sword to do um, the sweet and painful surgery that we need on our hearts and lives? In Christ's name we pray, amen.